I suppose that every preacher at some point in time in his life feels like he is a blessed man. And uh, I certainly do feel that myself. I appreciate all of the encouraging words after our lesson this morning and hope that our study together uh, is encouraging and uplifting to you. Tonight's lesson is in our series of lessons the first Sunday night of each month where I attempt to answer a question that has been submitted by someone in the congregation. And I will tell you again that questions are good because that's seeking information. That's a great way for a person to learn because you ask a question and someone answers it and uh, sometimes it causes the person answering the question to dig and to be able to try to find the best way to answer the question. But I will tell you that our answers must always be those that are sought from God's Word. As Peter would put it in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. So if we're going to give an answer, we ought to always give a biblical answer, God's answer to it. But I will tell you that as I go to the book of Proverbs chapter 3 in verses 5 through 7, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. I think it's valuable that as we approach these that we recognize that Our own wisdom, our own ideas are not nearly as important as God's answers to them. We have organized the questions that have been asked into three separate categories. There's some of them that are textual. Someone will say, I want to know, for instance, what this means in this particular passage. And we have dealt with some of those and we'll deal with some more of those in the future that are on the list of questions to be answered. Others are topical. That is, someone may ask, what about baptism? And particularly things like, should a person be rebaptized? And if they should, when should a person be rebaptized? And then there are some that are practical. How do I do this or do that? And tonight's lesson is actually going to be in the practical category. It was a very good question asked by one of the members here. And that question is essentially this. And uh, I've had to rephrase it and I feel like I still need to rephrase it again. How does one respond to negative comments made about the Lord's church? For instance, if someone in your work environment or maybe at school Or maybe even in your family, perhaps you got together during the holidays and you are a member of the Lord's church and some of your family are not. And there were questions that were directed or even comments that were directed toward you. How do I respond to those? And I was asked to please give some practical and simple answers that ordinary members might use. And of course, I will tell you, I don't know what the term ordinary member means. Uh, we're all members of the Lord's body, uh, but I understand the thought behind the question is, how can I, as a person who's not maybe as trained as others, I'm going to try to do my best in answering those questions. 
And I will tell you that I have grouped these into four different uh, groups. But let me begin by setting the stage and pointing out we don't live in a unique time. It's important to realize that the church throughout history has been criticized and suffered from some negative comments. There will always be people, there always will be people who will say things, whether in our families or in our friendship circles, that are not always complimentary of the Lord's church. You remember in Acts 28 when Paul arrived at Rome as a prisoner? And he called the Jewish people to him to meet with them. And their response was, We desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoke against everywhere. Now think about their representation of the church. We know that everywhere people are talking about the church, they are speaking against it. You back up to chapter 24, verse 14. And Paul again uses this idea of this sect. He says, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all the things are written in the law and in the prophets. You and I believe the Bible. We believe what is written there. And yet there are people who are going to call us a sect. They're going to call us your little group and things such as that. But there's a way to respond and there's a way not to respond. I often use 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, but sanctifying your hearts, Christ Jesus is Lord, being ready always to give an answer to every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. Okay, we recognize giving that answer. But the verse that follows says, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Here's the follow-up, folks. Yes, we give a reasoned, uh, a good answer, but the way that we influence people is the way we act when we do. That means that my life must reflect a respect for God and doing what is right so that when people criticize us, they can't criticize us because of the way we act. Because we act in harmony with God's word. I will tell you that some will ask questions from sincerity. Some will make comments sincerely. Others do not. I want to draw your minds back for just a moment to John chapter 8. And uh, as you're turning there, I will remind you that the event under consideration is there's a woman been taken in adultery in the very act. They brought the woman to Jesus and the text says their response to Jesus was, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? In other words, they're putting Jesus on the spot. And John goes on to record, This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Let me tell you, silence is not always a bad response. 
silence is not always a bad response. Sometimes people, the more they talk, the more foolish they sound, and you need to just keep giving them all the rope they need to hang themselves. Sometimes you can't avoid it. But on this occasion, initially Jesus responded by writing on the ground. Someone said, what did he write? I don't know what he wrote. The text doesn't tell us. He may have drawn a smiley face. I don't know what he drew on the ground. But the purpose was to let them know that he was ignoring their comment. Well, Tonight, the categories of some of these comments I'm going to address are these. And these are ones that, that individuals have asked about. People will say, why does the church of Christ believe in a works salvation? Or why do you believe you are saved by water? A second one is, why does the church of Christ believe they're the only ones going to heaven? Number three, why does the church of Christ not believe in music? And number four, why doesn't the church of Christ believe in the Old Testament? Now what I'm going to try to do is to respond to each of these in what I feel like is a reasonable way and in a way that you might be able to use as well. What about the charge that we believe in a works salvation or we believe we're saved by water? You know, that's a real serious charge. There are some religious groups who believe that what you are able to do is you're able to do enough good works that God owes you salvation. In fact, some religious groups have almost like a scale, if you will, by which a person... If you don't do enough, you get sent to purgatory and you have to work your way out of that. Well, I would like to point out to you that we do not believe in a salvation by works. But I want to point out to you that when I go to the Bible and you look up the term works, you have to understand the word is used in two different ways in the Bible. And you have to look at the context to know what he's talking about. There are some times when in the Bible, the Bible is saying you are not saved by works of merit, something that you did to earn it, to attain it. But there are other places in the Bible where it says that you must work. Let me give you an illustration. We know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul would write... For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Now verse 9 says, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Notice the context. Not of works, lest one should boast. These are the kind of works that if I do them, I can say, Hey, look what I have done. Count up the works that I have done and let's, let's weigh them and see how much I have accomplished. Those are the kind of works that one is never saved by. On the other hand, when I go to the book of James to chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, going through the end of the chapter, he is going to address the idea of faith and works. And he says in verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works 
and not by faith only. Oh, but my friends would say, I believe we're saved by faith only. But do you realize the only time in the Bible where faith only appears is right here, and it says we're not saved by faith only. But you see, I've got to still deal with this idea of works. What do you mean when you say not of works? When I generally encounter someone who will say, you believe in a work salvation, I will say, well, do you? And they usually look at, no, I don't believe in a work salvation. And I would say, well, what about faith? Do you believe that a person, oh, faith is not a work. And I say, I beg to differ. Because when I go and look at John 6, verses 28 and 29, this is our Lord now. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? That was a question asked of our Lord. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, This is the work of God that you believe on Him or in Him whom He sent. Jesus called faith a work, but it's not a work of merit. It's a work of obedience. It's a command that He gave and He said, This is the work that you must do. I would point out that baptism is not a work of merit, but is an act of obedience to a command. And I could go through a number of passages, but I could go to particularly to Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, how do I do that, Lord? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a command that Jesus gave. Someone says, well, then you believe we're saved by water. And I'd say, no, 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 I don't believe we're saved by water. I believe we're saved by the blood of Christ. But I believe that the means by which God chose to do that was water, through water. And I would go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20. We often quote verse 21, but let's notice 20 who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. That was the means by which they got from one side to the other side. Over here you had the old world full of corruption. Over here you had the new world What was it they went through? They went through water. Over here you have the old man. Over here you have the new man. What did they go through to reach the other side? They go through water. And we're talking about baptism. Romans 5, 9 is very clear. It uses the different word much more than having been justified by his blood. You understand we're saved through him. But I generally will ask people who will say, you don't believe then that a person has to be baptized. Oh, no, no, I don't believe you have to do that work. Then I would ask a question that follows up. Can you be saved willfully rejecting what God wills? In other words, if God tells me, you do this, 
And I say, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't believe I have to do that. Is there an illustration of that in the Bible? And there is. I generally will go back to the baptism of John. And I will go back to John chapter 3. And here is an important section of John 3. There arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And if you want to know a lot more about purification of Jews, I'd recommend you study uh, maybe a good Bible dictionary, Bible encyclopedia about that. One of the things that involved for every Jewish man was going down into a mikvah. And you say, what is that? It's a baptistry. They're all over the Bible lands. Everywhere you go, there's a little pool with steps going down into it. This idea of purification. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom they have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Listen to John's response. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. My response to someone is, was the baptism of John from heaven, that is God commanded it, or was it from men? I say, I don't know. Let's, Let's think about that. Let's go to a passage of Scripture that talks about that. And I go to Matthew 21. And they're asking Jesus, by what authority was he doing these things? He said, I will ask you one thing, which of you will tell me. I like us will tell you what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Now folks, that's, that's a real live question. They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they fear the multitude, for all counted John as prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. My response to a person who is saying, You don't have to be baptized, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And you know the immediate answer is going to have to be, it was from heaven. Now we go to Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. And Luke says, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Do you know that the question about whether or not a person needs to be baptized goes back before the church? It goes back to the personal ministry of Jesus and John? And that there were people then whose hearts were humble, who were willing to say, God, you tell me what I need to do and that's what I'll do. And it says that the tax collectors, they justified God. They respected God. They respected His will. But verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God. 
And people today who say you don't have to be baptized, they are rejecting the will of God just like they did in John's day. So if I am discussing with someone in a practical way whether or not a person is saved by water, well, we're not saved by water, we're saved through water because it's a part of God's plan. Now let me deal with the second one, which is probably the more common one. And I would assume that many of you have had this asked to you in one fashion or another. The charge that we believe that we're the only ones going to heaven. I've had family members ask me that. I've had friends ask me that. I've had critics of the church ask me that. And my first response is always this. What I believe or what I think is irrelevant. In fact, why are you worried about what I think? Why are you worried about what I might think about your clothes? I may think your clothes look funny. What I think doesn't matter at all. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul, an inspired apostle. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not judge myself, for I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Paul says, I'm not even capable of providing an accurate, full judgment of myself. And who knows me better than I know me? So my opinion of myself or my opinion of you should never be the standard. So you should never get caught up in this idea. Do you think, oh, it's what I think doesn't matter. What you think doesn't matter. What matters is what God says. So generally, I will return the question. I'll say, do you believe that everyone will be saved? Do you believe that everyone will be saved? And almost invariably they will either do one of two things. They will not answer the question, which I found to be the most common one. Or number two, they will say, no, I don't believe everybody's going to heaven. And so if they say no, I will say then, upon what basis are you making that decision? Do you believe that only this group is going to heaven? Are you somehow becoming what you are accusing me of, of being bigoted or prejudiced or somehow being the judge? There is the issue of the criteria by which every man will be judged. And that is whether or not he has done the commandments of God, including things like being baptized. And just simply saying that I am a religious man and that I want the Lord to save me and calling on God's name is not enough. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And generally, that's where the bottom line stops. Only those people who do the will of God are the ones who are going to get to go to heaven. Those who reject it, those who refuse it, will not. Question number three, or charge number three, that we do not believe in music. I've had probably several times over the years, two or three times when I've been delivering tapes at the radio station when we had our Sunday morning radio program, I would have people say, why don't you guys believe in music? And I generally will respond, what do you mean we don't believe in music? We sing every service. Oh, but they say, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real music. And by that, they generally mean instrumental music. And in their minds, they look at this as just a matter of preference or a matter of tradition. In other words, the churches of Christ, they don't like instrumental music, and so they don't use it. And I try to point out that's not the issue at all. In fact, the truth is, I like just playing instrumental music as far as my own personal preference. But that's not what it's about. It's about being precise in obeying God. Do details matter? And that's a question that I generally will respond. Do the details matter? When it comes to the worship that I offer to God, does He care what I do? And most of the time they'll say, well, no, 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 as long as I say. So I can get an idol and I can use that and pray to that idol and somehow God will be, oh, no, no, God won't accept that. Well, then how do I know what God wants? Well, you know, the Bible tells us. Oh, how precise do I need to be? And then what we will do is we will say, Let's look at some examples where God didn't allow any modification or change in the order. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, they took and they got strange fire and offered it in their censers. And fire came down of heaven and consumed them because they offered strange fire. They didn't get it from where they were supposed to get it. Or I go, for instance, to Exodus chapter 17 and verse 6, and Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. They come first and they're thirsty, and God tells Moses, Behold, I will stand you before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it that the people may drink. Fast forward many, many years, And now again the people are thirsty and God says to them in Numbers 20 verse 8, Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will yield water. And thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock. Verse 11, Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly to the land which I have given them. God told him to strike it the first time, and he did, and water came out. God told him to speak to it the second time, but he struck it. Oh, do you mean that God can change what he wants me to do at one 
time frame and another, yes. There was a time in which God, for instance, may have permitted the use of instruments. But that doesn't mean that he permits them or wants them over here. A third illustration, which you're very well aware of, is 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and 15. David is ready to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You get to 1 Chronicles 13. He's had prepared a brand new cart, put these oxen to it, and he's got Uzzah and Ahau to drive the cart. The oxen stumbled. Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark so it doesn't fall off the cart. When he touches it, he dies there before the Lord. David became angry, frustrated, said, how can I bring the ark of God to me? You know, God doesn't like what I've done. Get over to chapter 15, and he says, for because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Oh, you mean those rings on the side so that you put the poles through and it's to be borne on the shoulders of the priest. Oh, that's the way you carry it. Do you doubt that David was sincere when he wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem? Brand new cart. Brand new team of oxen. No, he wasn't going second class at all. But that was not acceptable to God. The use of instrumental music in the New Testament is conspicuously absent. You don't see it anywhere. What you do see is the vocal singing, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3 and verse 16. In church history, up until just relatively recently, has a begin against the use of instrumental music. So we're not the ones who've changed it. We're not the ones who are somehow out of orthodoxy. If you go to the New Testament, music in the Bible is vocal. Now, number four, very quickly, the charge that we do not believe the Old Testament. This is a misunderstanding about the teaching that the Lord's Church does from the Bible. The Old Testament is true and righteous and good, but it is not binding upon us today. You could go through a number of passages, Colossians 2 and verse 14. He's taking it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He goes on in that same context and says, don't let anyone judge you with regards to food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. He said, which are a shadow of the things to come, the substance of the Christ. You see, the shadow, the substance, old, new. Go to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, chapter 10, verse 9. He talks about the first and the second. The first one had flaws, and so you needed a second perfect law. Hebrews 10, 9, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. Paul even addresses this in Romans 7. Beginning with verse 1, he talks about how long a law goes between a man and a woman who are married. And then he says in verse 3 that you are free if the husband dies. And she's no adulteress, though she's married to another man. And 
You get to verse 4, he says, you become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to that which we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And someone says, but don't you believe those Ten Commandments? And I'd say, yes, but not because they're in the Old Testament, because they're in the New. Except one of them. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And someone says, oh, but the Old Testament has so many great laws in it. Yes, it does. But I can't go back and cherry pick which of those laws I want to keep and which ones I don't. In fact, that was Paul's point to the Galatians who were being drawn back into the Old Testament. And he told them in chapter 5, verse 2, he said, I say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again that every man who becomes circumcised is a debtor to keep the whole law. You want to go back and pull out part of the Old Testament law and say that that's binding? then you better get ready to do the animal sacrifices as well. I've taken longer than I intended to answer those four. Christians should expect criticism from the world. You should expect that people will mock you, make fun of you. But our response should never be one of anger, but always of wisdom. When Jesus was sending out his disciples, he wanted them to understand, you're going to encounter some difficult situations where people are going to threaten you and they're going to actually mistreat you. And here's the way he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Yes, we're going to be in a wicked world, but we shouldn't let the world guide us. We should be wise as a serpent is wise, but harmless as a dove. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace. Season with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And the truth is not decided by how I feel or you feel or our friends feel, but by what God has said. I hope that that has answered the question. Maybe not as practical as I would like for it to have been or as simple, but I do think it addresses those issues. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, I've thought a lot about how people plan to begin this new year. And one of the challenges that people come up with, they say, okay, this year I'm going to be more faithful. I'm going to... But if you're not a Christian, you're not faithful. If you're not a Christian, you've not begun the walk. Why not come tonight and be baptized for the remission of your sins? If you are a Christian and your life is not right, why not come and let's pray together. While together we stand and sing.